Please join me in the prayer of illumination. Living God, help us to hear your holy word so that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first reading is taken from Psalm 111 and can be found on page 614 of your pew Bibles. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart, in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever and acted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament lesson is a reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 15 through 20, that can be found on page 1176 of the Church Bibles. Hear God's word. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless to us the hearing and the understanding of God's holy word. Thomas Lynch, a funeral director, poet, and recovering alcoholic, writes that when he was a younger man, his infrequent prayers were of the why me God variety. Why do I have to work harder, longer, for less thanks or wages? Why can't I sleep in or get a break or win the lotto? Why would any woman leave a man like me? And when my inventory of why me's was exhausted, I would ask on behalf of my fellow man, why did cars crash, planes fall from the sky, and bad things happen to good people? 
Or folks, why did children have to die if there's anyone in charge? Or folks go homeless or people get away with murder? The silence out of heaven to these questions was real, he writes. Why wasn't God listening? I wanted to know. And before I agreed to step one foot in heaven, I had a list of things I wanted explanations for. Well, you can't blame Thomas Lynch for asking. After all, Ephesians encourages us to understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's what he was trying to do. There's a woman in my neighborhood who had been uh, trying to... to there's a, that's what a woman in my neighborhood was trying to do when she came up to me in my driveway one day, seething with anger. And she said, I've had it with God. She told me that her daughter-in-law had just suffered her third failed pregnancy. All these people getting abortions... Children born into families that don't want them. And here is a wonderful family that wants a child and can't have one. I grew up in the church, but now I'm done with it. Well, you can understand her. We claim that God is all-powerful, that God is all-good. But if there is such a God, why can such bad things happen? It makes no sense. And if it matters so little to God, what happens to me and those I love, what happens to innocent people like those who, well, like my cousin who died not so long ago at the age of 39, leaving behind a husband and two small children. If God lets things like that happen, then what difference does it make what I do with my life? Why should I bother to please a God like that? Lynch says that his what's-in-it-for-me questions would get more intense the more he drank. One of the appeals of drinking is that alcohol alters our outlook on life. At its best, drinking is how we create the happy hour. It helps us screen out life's anxieties and relax, helps us forget those worries and regrets and disappointments that weigh us down so that life is lighter and more carefree. But sometimes alcohol doesn't stop with screening out our anxieties. Sometimes it screens out our responsibilities, our loyalties, those bonds that connect us with the rest of the world so that we wind up focusing more and more on ourselves. Ephesians warns us against getting drunk because it distorts our perspective on life. The writer contrasts being filled with wine with being filled with the Spirit. Lynch writes, What I've learned from my sobriety, from the men and women who keep me sober, is how to pray. Blind drunks who get sober get a kind of blind faith, not so much a vision of who God is, but of who God is not, namely me. But you can have a distorted perspective on life and be perfectly sober. You can be a teetotaler 
and still demand that God conform the universe to your expectations. Today's lesson reminds us that the days are evil. That was written 2,000 years ago, and every generation has proof that those words are true. Every age has its principalities and powers that are working to convince us that the universe is centered somewhere other than in the God we know through Scripture. Lynch says that drinking convinced him that he was the be-all and end-all of everything. But you don't have to be to drink to be convinced that the world exists for you. It's as if the very air we breathe intoxicates us so that we see ourselves as the reason for everything. We learn to work the system to get every last perk we can regardless of who it affects. We pour carbon into the atmosphere for children to breathe because we're entitled to our profits. The gospel of self-esteem and prosperity fills auditoriums from Houston to Nairobi proclaiming that you deserve a miracle in your life. So the letter of Ephesians urges us to be careful. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And the will of the Lord is not that innocent children die, that loving families should remain childless, that good people suffer bad things. We don't understand the will of the Lord by taking inventory of life's tragedies. We know the will of the Lord through Jesus, who died on the cross. Jesus makes no claim that because God is good and powerful, then we should expect we should receive nothing but good and be spared from all evil. Lynch writes, when I was a child, all of my prayers sounded like gimme gimme. I wanted a Jerry Mahoney puppet to fly like Superman and for my brothers and sisters to be adopted by other kindly parents and leave me and my mother and father alone. I got none of those things. Those prayers were never answered. Of course not, because he was not at the center of things. What's at the center of things is the cross, where God himself in Jesus suffered and died unjustly, where our Savior's prayer to be spared the pain and abandonment that the rest of us suffer was answered no, where he showed us that God really does walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, but we still have to walk through it. It's on the cross that we understand what the will of the Lord is. And the Lord's will is that all should be one in him and do his good works and sing his eternal praise. The resurrection gives us a foretaste and a promise of that time that's described in Revelation when he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning 
and crying and pain will be no more. It's hard for us to comprehend that yet fulfilled promise of God's reign of love and peace and justice, especially when we live in a world that's filled with so much suffering and evil. All of us make assumptions based on what we're used to, and we're used to things the way that we know them. My grandchildren, when they lived in Madrid, went to an international church like this. It worships in a university classroom. It's a very informal service. Uh, the, they, the pastor wears what you might call civilian clothes, you know, um, clothes like I'm wearing today, not clerical garb. The ki- grandkids came to visit me when I was uh, serving as the interim pastor of a church where the pastors lead worship in Geneva gowns, like I wore here before the weather turned hot. So when my grandson, who was three at the time, came up from the nursery after service and saw me standing there in this long black robe, he said, Grandpa, why are you wearing a witch's costume? Here I was, standing in the august tradition of Calvin and the Reformers, wearing, you know, their garb. And the only people who had ever seen wearing long black robes were people dressed up like witches. We make judgments and assumptions based on what we're used to. That's how we make our judgments about God. We live in a rational world that runs on logic and linear thinking. We have to do that so we can work hard to provide for ourselves. So from that point of view, it only makes sense that God who is good and a God who is powerful and a God who cares about me would give me what I want, answer all my questions, and run the world in a way that makes sense to me. But there's more to it than what we're used to. Ephesians says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us see from a different perspective, from the perspective of the cross, where Jesus won victory through weakness, where he raised us to eternal life through his death. Of course, the universe still runs logically, more or less, And we still have to follow certain ways of operating to provide for ourselves. But in Jesus, transformed by the Holy Spirit, we aren't locked into understanding who we are and who God is from the narrow perspective of ourselves. We see that there's more to what's going on around us than we can comprehend. That there are things about God that we cannot understand by our rational thoughts, or which can be expressed in words. That's why the passage ends with this exhortation to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. There's something about music that 
opens us to the Holy Spirit and lets us know God, God in a way that nothing else can. On one level, music is very logical. The study of music involves learning about intervals and steps and harmonics, how tones and chords work together in a very rational way. People who are good at math are often also very good at music, which is probably why I was never very good in music. But that's not why we listen to music. iTunes does not make millions of dollars for Apple because people are intrigued by trying to understand the harmonics of Taylor Swift and Dr. Dree. The power of music is its ability to move us in ways that go beyond words. I've led worship in nursing facilities where residents with, with dementia could not even remember their own children's names, but they could sing along with the hymns, remembering the tune and every single word. Music's ability to speak to us in a deep, mysterious way explains why music is behind so many church fights. We fight hardest for the things that are the most important to us. One reason I'm grateful for IPC's wonderful music ministry, its choir, Ruth's organ gifts, all the many people in this congregation who can share their gifts of music at this service or in the evening, is that I can be assured that if the sermon flops, then you're still going to get something out of the service. <laughs> Music stirs up gratitude in our hearts, helps us see from a different perspective, helps us say thank you to God, even when we have a hard time finding things to be thankful for. Thomas Lynch goes on to explain how things changed for him when he started centering his prayers, not on the things he wanted, but on giving thanks for what was. He started by giving thanks for his family, then the daylight, and the evening, and the weather. Then the kindness you see in humankind, he writes, their foibles and their tender mercies. I could even be grateful for my ex-wife, the tax man, the fools who run the world and ruin everything. The more I mouthed my thanks for them, the less they bothered me. And every time I say thank you, the prayer gets answered. Someone out of the blue Every day, maybe my wife or someone at the office or the guy in line at the airport, someone gives out with a sign or wonder in the voice of God in some other voice than mine to answer my prayer. Every day, every time, never fails. If I just say thanks, I get an answer before the darkness comes. You're welcome. It says, you're welcome. Be thankful at all times and for everything. That prayer is always answered.
And in our thanks, the Spirit transforms us so we can hear the answer to all our prayers, which is the promise that for all our perplexity and all our pain in life and in death, we belong to God. Thank you for that.